Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, we're about to have one heavenly conversation. But before we do that, let me remind you about the National Conference on Youth Ministry. If you're interested in a conference put on by youth workers for youth workers, go to ncym.org for more information for this conference coming up in January. That's my daughter, Audrey. She's telling you how awesome it is, so listen to her. She's right on. Hey, at the end of this conversation with Dr. Scott McKnight, we lose a little bit of the service, so conversation has to peter out a little bit before it's probably done. But I think you're going to enjoy the conversation at hand. And so without... Daddy. Hey, Daddy. Can you say bye-bye? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. There it is. Bye-bye. One. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show from uh, outside of Chicago. Our friend, Dr. Scott McKnight. How are you, sir? Doing very well, Luke. Good to be with you. And your folks again, your tribe. You know, my tribe, the Churches of Christ, it's like you're a pseudo-Church of Christ member. You've, you reference Randy Harris, who's basically the Pope of Churches of Christ, Josh Ross, my good friend and well-known Church of Christ preacher. When are you just going to drop the fancy words before your name, sing some a cappella, and officially join the tribe? Well... It could be a while. There's not. Uh, we're we're very contented in our Anglican church. So okay. Well, and you also have uh, our friend Jonathan Stormont writing for you regularly. Yes, and he well he he guides that. So most of the time he's doing a series, but sometimes it's Josh Graves, mm-hmm. Sarah Barton, and then he gets other preachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get involved, or the, pastors, as I call them. You were right at first. You got to stay with the preacher because you pastor weirds us out. Now you're doing so good. You had Josh Graves and Sarah Barton. So the question a lot of us are wondering is, why did you pick Jonathan Stormont? I mean, <laughs> there's so many other people out there. What made you go with Johnny Storm? Well, um, I don't compare these different young Church of Christ preachers, but I think he's an outstanding young man. Yes, he is. And he gave me an opportunity to enter into and to pro- provide on the blog not only uh, my desire to keep the Churches of Christ more alive in the evangelical discussion, but also to work with a younger pastor mm-hmm. on the blog. So I wanted a younger voice. So Talk- he's, he's been really good. Yeah, and he, he is good. Don't tell him I said that. But w- So you said you wanted to help keep the Churches of Christ a part of the uh, evangelical conversation? Where did that yeah, come from? This, okay, uh, this is a long discussion, and I think in the end, Randy Harris is going to win on this one. <laughs> I, I've been arguing for a long time that Churches of Christ should be seen as a part of evangelicalism. Molly Worthen's book, Apostles of Reason, uh, incorporates the Restoration Churches as a part of her understanding of evangelicalism. A lot of people think, and she's she's critical of this, a lot of people think that evangelicalism can be reduced to the more reformed group that you would see in a place like, in a general sense of reform, like Christianity Today, and the major evangelical publishers. And she says it needs to include uh, the Wesleyan Holiness Nazarene tradition. That's one group. It needs to include include the Restoration Movement. It needs to include the... Anabaptist or neo-Anabaptist tradition, as well as the more reform side. Well, so I like that. I, I think that's the way I would perceive evangelicalism, but the fact is that one group of people has sort of done all the defining 
and all the inviting and all the accepting and all the publishing, and they've pretty much excluded the Nazarene Wesleyan tradition, so they have their own publishing outfit. They have their own magazines. The Restoration Group has their own, and largely the Neo-Anabaptists have their own. So, so in essence, uh, the desire to bring them together is an ideal rather than any kind of living reality of evangelicalism, which to me is pretty disappointing. But I've always thought, ever since I taught at Trinity back in the late 70s, and then in the 80s and 90s, I always thought that uh, my Christian church students were just a part of who we were. But uh, we're, we're learning that uh, sociologically they've been cut off. Well, thank you for grafting yeah. us back in. I do appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk uh, about your new book. It's entitled yeah. The Heaven Promise. Now, I was talking to uh, one of my Church of Christ preacher friends, and uh, he, he was asking about your new book, and I said, it's The Heaven Promise. Scott McKnight's writing about heaven. And his response was, heaven doesn't seem like a Scott McKnight book. He didn't expect you to be someone who wrote about heaven. Now, I don't know what he meant by that, but why would you, esteemed scholar, decide to write a book about heaven? Well, uh, I wrote about heaven in um, a little bit in my Jesus Creed book. Mm-hmm. I wrote a little bit about it indirectly in a book in 1999, uh, A New Vision for Israel. I wrote about it then in Embracing Grace. I wrote about it then in One Life. So it's been a part of much of what I've written. And when my agent uh, worked with me to try to work on some topics for books for Waterbrook, uh, one of the topics that rose to the surface that was an interest of mine and of my agents and the publisher was on heaven. And uh, it's sort of uh, Tom Wright for dummies. It's, it's a resurrection of the Son of God and surprised by hope at a lower level. Uh, for, you know, Tom's books are, are read by, more by pastors than they are by lay folks. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to write a book on heaven for lay folks that focus, I mean, it's not the same as Tom's. We disagree on a few things. But uh, I frame it differently and I form the whole idea differently, but it's really about um, a vision of heaven that focuses on the new heavens and the new earth uh, and pushes against the debate that has occurred in the history of the church that it's either a theocentric heaven, which is all about worship of God and an endless worship service Mm -hmm. where we're ecstatically... uh, absorbed with a vision of God so much so that we are unaware of anyone else around and we're drawn into the presence of God. That's the theocentric vision. And then there's the, uh, in the history of the church, there's been sort of a, they call it an anthropocentric vision, which I think is a mistaken category. I call it a kingdom-centric vision, and that is the kingdom of God will surely be wrapped up in the presence of God and worship of the Lamb, but it will also be a global a community of reconciliation and peace and justice. And as we look at Revelation 20 through 22, in fact, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the final heaven, is actually a thriving city with a garden in the middle and not just uh, the inside of a sanctuary. Yeah. So was that the, the motivation you wanted to have this picture, this, you know, to use your language, you know, Tom Wright for Dummies, an accessible version of this material that could be read by... Normal people, not just academics or professors? Yeah. Um, I, um, 
I wanted to tie together some loose ends of mine on heaven that I've been writing about for years, and I wanted to kind of put it together in a better way. I get asked about heaven a lot. And discussions, uh, yesterday on my Paul class, uh, maybe it was my Jesus class. I taught two classes. Yeah, it was my Jesus class. This came up at the beginning, and it really surprised me how much people were interested in this topic. Really? And uh, I was talking about resurrection, and they wanted to go there. I thought, well, that's not what this class is about. So people in the churches who are pastors, preachers, want to know what happens when we die. People want to know where their loved ones are. So questions about heaven are daily routines for anybody of of a normal-sized church and attentive to anybody in the community where people are dying. So these questions arise. And I wanted to write a book that you could put at the back of the church that anybody could pick up, and it would sort of answer their standard questions about heaven. And I think your book is very accessible. I think that's what you set out to do, and obviously you, I think you succeeded in that. I think if anyone's— Well, thank you. I, I think this is a great book. If you're, if you're a church leader, you want to have a discussion on heaven, buy the book, have it on your shelf whenever you're ready to talk about heaven— it's a great little exercise that you can go through. Or the book is a great exercise for you to get your thoughts in order. I found it very, very accessible, very helpful. And, and so as a pastor of a church, obviously heaven comes up a lot. And, you know, just in the last two weeks, I probably had three lunches or gatherings with people who've lost a kid. And so obviously heaven is front and center for their mind for good reason. If I was in their situation, I'd be thinking the exact same way. But there's another group of people who don't seem to focus that much on heaven because their attitude is, okay, well, if the Jewish people had this picture of what the Messiah was going to be like in Jesus, that most of them seem to completely miss it. Like they had this expectation for who Jesus was going to be. Most people in the first century didn't really get who Jesus was. And so if we got that wrong, how are we going to get the next phase right when we guess what that's going to be like? Well, I, I would really push back and say we're not guessing here. Uh, we have, I, I'm trying to base this on what the Bible does teach and, uh, guessing what the Messiah was like. First of all, I don't think this conversation, uh, ends up pretending to know a whole lot about what Jews were expecting and were mistaken. There wasn't very much messianic speculation in the first century. It's a rare term in the old Testament, and it is not common even in Jewish eschatological literature. So they were looking for the kingdom of God. They were looking for the elimination of Rome. Mm -hmm. They were looking for justice and peace. And the Gentiles would be gone, and they would live the Torah uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. And Jesus came and highlighted passages in the scriptures that they had missed. So I don't think he was doing anything altogether that new. He thought he was drawing upon the deep wells of scripture. So I would say the same thing about this, is that we're focused on what the Bible does say about heaven, try to get away from the speculative tradition and focus more on how heaven, what the big themes are about heaven. And to me, Luke, one of the, the, I mean, I I use two theological underpinnings for the entire book. And the first one is that heaven is a promise in this sense. From the very beginning, God fills the Bible with promises. Mm Mm-hmm. It begins with the Abrahamic promise, unfolds through Moses, through David, through the prophets, through Jesus, the new covenant. This is a covenant promise that God, that he will do certain things for his people. He will bless them, 
and the blessings that are promised in the promise to Abraham are quite material and quite physical and quite real earth-type things. Well, then when you get to Revelation 20 through 22, that's exactly what you get. You get those material visions uh, coming to fruition. So it's a promise. The second theme underpinning for me is that we, we need to base our view of heaven on the resurrection body of Jesus, is that when he was raised from the dead, we got a glimpse of what embodied life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. And so I think I try to root all kinds of speculations that happen about heaven. I try to connect to one of those two promises or to both in order to articulate a reasonable Christian answer. Yeah. Well, your language in the book is we have a Monet-like impression, or I think another metaphor you use when you're talking about, uh, I think it was the birth of your grandkids. Like It's like an ultrasound that we have some picture of what it's going to be like. But uh, there's not a ton, I think you even said this in the book, there's not a ton that we have in the Bible defining exactly what it's, heaven's going to be like. And so you're having to do some some work trying to fill in some of these details that aren't really spent, uh, the Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time filling them in. Would that be fair to say? Um, I, I would say there's speculation about details, yes, but I, I, draw, I draw six promises mm-hmm. that I think are the core big ideas about the new heavens and the new earth, mm-hmm. that God will be God, that Jesus will be Jesus, that heaven will be a utopia of pleasures so that people will be entirely satisfied and happy and joyous, Mm-hmm. In the best sense of the word, yep. heaven will be eternal, so it'll be an eternal life, which is both a quality of life and an endlessness. Mm-hmm. It will be a global fellowship, which means we're going to have to get along with Christians in all traditions, uh, not just our own, and heaven will be a beloved community, and that means it will be it will be a society. It will not just be a church service where I, as an individual, get to worship God but it will be a functioning, flourishing society. I don't think any of that even touches near speculation. Those are the big themes that I think then phenomenologically we can kind of fill out with reason based upon the promise of Abraham and the resurrection body of Jesus. So uh, the other thing I have, my favorite chapter to write was the first hour in heaven, uh, that the essence of heaven is when God makes all things right. Mm -hmm. And for all things to be made right, all the wrongs have to be acknowledged and undone and repented from, and reconciliation has to occur. Mm -hmm. So this is a big idea for me about heaven, is that it will be the place where all things are made right. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a a line in that, I think it was in that chapter about injustice, but you say there will be a moment when the uh, perpetrator fully realizes what he has done and fully embraces his sin, and the victim will find full vindication and justice. W- why was that such an important theme to you? Because heaven is not heaven until all things are made right. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to assume that not everybody who goes to heaven has been perfectly reconciled with everybody in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we know people who, let's say they're Christians and they've done some evil things that they will have to acknowledge that evil. And I don't know when this happens. I, I speculate there, and I, it doesn't matter to me. It could be the moment of death when we are fully conscious of who we are in the presence of God. It could be at the general resurrection. 
It could be at the encounter of others in the endless existence, perichoretic existence of eternity. I, I don't. I don't pretend to know. Don't. I don't make an, an argument on that basis. But I do think that at some level, we will realize our complicities. We will embrace that we were complicit in sins, and we will be forgiven, and we will embrace those with whom that whom we've harmed and wounded, hmm. and they will and they will embrace us. Yeah. It won't be heaven until that happens. We can't just ignore what has happened. Yeah. Okay. Well, then, how do you hold that idea that I am going to have to own up to the things that I did wrong? In your book, the the uh, the story you tell is of a a girl and her sister who were treated poorly by a father. One of them was abused. Obviously, something has to be done to deal with that. And so you have that experience there, and then you also have the text that you reference quite often about there's no tears in heaven. And and so is there some weird, like, you, you talk about there's like the first heaven and then the final heaven, which obviously Wright talked about that, um, plenty in some of his writings too, uh, not using that language, of course. But how, like, how do you hold those two things? Like, there's no tears, but if you have to own up to what you've done, don't you feel like that would be a quite sorrowful experience? Um, I'm willing to live with a little bit of ambiguity on that. Uh, Luke, I I think I'd put it this way. I I think I'm, I'm, I'm confident that in heaven, all things will be made right. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is no heaven. If all things are not made right, I'm confident that for all things to be made right, all wrongs have to be rectified. All wrongs have to be acknowledged. So at some moment, at least at some moment uh, between, let's say, death and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, the general resurrection, our presence in God, we will know who we truly are. Uh, I think that that will be that will be overshadowed by the joy into which we are entering. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd frame it that way. Yeah. That sounds good. That makes sense. And I like, don't believe in purgatory, so I don't think that this is a time where we're going to have to work out our sinfulness. I don't believe that in one, one for one second. But I do think we will ha- we will suddenly know ourselves for who we were. Hmm. That's good. Can we go back to talking about resurrection? You mentioned yeah. earlier in the book. You say that all of this is based on Jesus' resurrection. Yes. And so the whole thing is resurrection. I, I loved King Jesus Gospel, uh, a book you wrote, one of my favorite things you've ever done. And you spent a lot of time developing First Corinthians 15, the centrality of death, burial, resurrection. This is the center of the story. So it makes sense. It's the center of heaven, that same thing. Um, you quote uh, an author named Lisa Miller, uh, or you reference her, and she talks about that she couldn't believe in heaven because she doesn't believe in resurrection. Is there... Is there any way, in your opinion, that you can believe in some sort of eschatological redemption without believing in the resurrection of Jesus? Or do you think it all just hangs right there? Uh, I don't think you can be Christian and believe in a heaven of an eternal life without believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I suppose there are people who have other views of heaven, let's say in in Judaism, conservative Judaism, who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but they believe in resurrection. Mm-hmm. I would say that that uh, it is impossible to be consistently Christian and to deny the resurrection of Jesus, and it is the resurrection of Jesus that unleashes new creation. I sound like Tom Wright. It unleashes new creation, mm-hmm. 
and therefore it unleashes the new heavens and the new earth. So yeah, it's all that. Yeah. It's all resurrection. It's, you've got to have the resurrection. And so it, everything hangs on that. So if it's not there, all we've done is in vain. I think Paul might have said that once. Yeah, he said if, if Jesus was not raised from the, from the dead, you are still in your sins. We are liars and we're in vanity. Well, that's I, 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 I totally believe that. So it's all resurrection for you. It starts and ends there. That's 100% certain. It's the foundation of the entire doctrine of heaven. So if someone wanted to say, there's, is there any other way for me? Because the idea of Jesus actually being raised from the dead is too preposterous for me. People, when they're dead, they stay dead. I can't get there. I still want to be a Christian, but I don't know if I can really hold to that belief. What do you say to them? I would say that's not Christian. I mean, the gospel is that Jesus died and was raised. That's what constitutes Christianity. Not an ethic, not a society, uh, not a Western world. What constitutes Christianity is that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. No resurrection, no, no Christianity. Jesus, why would someone want to be a, a Christian if Jesus was a fraud? Okay. So we're all buying into resurrection. That's the centerpiece. We're holding on to that. So let's jump into some of what heaven will be like. You flesh out some of the stuff in the book. I want to hear more about it because it sounds very interesting to me. Now, let me tell you a story. A couple of weeks ago, I was, uh, we had uh, the good bishop, Dr. N.T. Wright, on and just talking about his new book. And he kinda, we kind of went on a tangent. And he was talking about paradise and the, the language that uh, the criminal used on the cross. And Jesus says, today I'll see you in paradise. And he said, well, maybe that's what heaven's like. And, but that's not life after life after death, which is Tom Wright's language. Your language is there's a first heaven and a final heaven. And you compare the first heaven to a dormitory, like it's a temporary transient state. And then the final heaven, this is ultimately where you're going to last. Is, um, it, it seems like for many people, this would be a new idea to them. Do you think that's fair to say? I, you know, I really don't know. I, I, uh, I've heard this for so long. Uh, that I I don't think it's new. In fact, Tom Wright has taught it, but Randy Alcorn, who's about as mm -hmm. conservative as they get, he teaches a very similar thing. And people have, anybody in the history of the church who has had a vision of heaven as a new heavens and the new earth, which has been one of the central themes of Christians throughout the history of heaven discussion, the early Augustine versus the later Augustine, Anybody who's had that view has had to have some belief that at death, unless they believe in soul sleep or person sleep, at death people are in the presence of God, but in the, at the general resurrection, they are, our bodies are reconstituted, restored for the new heavens and the new earth, and that they will then participate uh, with a new body in the new heavens and the new earth for the new Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I don't think that, uh, uh, Luke, I don't think it's new. I think it's been a standard part of Christian orthodoxy. Tom Wright pushed very hard, and I think he was correct. And yesterday in my Jesus class, most students in the class agreed that they grew up with Platonism, that when they die, their soul goes to heaven, there's sort of an immortality of the soul, mm -hmm. and that heaven is sort of a spiritual, soulish existence and there was no focus on society or an, a re-embodiment type thing. Yeah. So I think, I think Tom is correctly pushing against that. I did not find 
I, I haven't read all the reviews or even any reviews of Randy Alcorn stuff, but I don't remember Alcorn creating any controversy when he wrote that book and he had a present heaven and a future heaven or something like that. His book has sold 800,000 copies, hmm. which well, means a lot of people think that that's the right view. Well, you need to get all those people to buy your book. That's what yeah. you need to do. I'm sure yeah. that'd be nice. Mine's easier to read than his too. It, you know, that's what I like about your books. They're very short chapters. It makes you feel like you're really accomplishing something. Every five pages, you're like, I'm in a new chapter. Well, this has been a part of my strategy, Luke, over mm -hmm. time, is to write chapters that are accessible, write in prose that is accessible, make academic scholarship readable and understandable mm -hmm. and of value to lay people. And I learned that you can't have 45-page chapters with long, winding paragraphs with extensive footnotes. It has to be simple, clear, and let's move on with the right pace. So that's that's a that's why there's the length of chapters at the I I really do like it. So you've got your short chapters. Rob Bell has his short sentences. Everyone's happy. We like it. We like it. Okay. So let's go back to what heaven's going to be like. So we're moving past this disembodied um, souls floating around on clouds playing harps, and instead this it's the new Jerusalem, the redemption of the world, and part of that means that there's going to be we're going to have our physical body back, okay? And yeah. so as someone like you, you high-jumped. Is it six foot eight? Was that your PR? Am, am six, I, nine. Six, six, oh, nine. Six, hey, I don't want to jip you that inch. Six yeah, foot. As a, as a junior in high school. Yeah. That, as a former track guy, I was a pole vaulter. But I Were always, you really? Yeah, I pole vaulted AC for a little while until I realized I'm not good enough. But I always thought the high jump and the 100 were the most impressive athletic feats in all of sports. Just jumping high and running fast. That's what it all comes down to. So you are quite the athlete. You've got a son who is a baseball player, right? He was, yep. And so yep. you, you're athletic. Your son's athletic. Of course you want your physical body back. What, do you, what does it do for like those who don't have such a good physical body? Say you're a short homeschool guy from Arkansas. Like, What about you? How do you <laughs> – what about someone like that? Nothing, I mean, hypothetically Storm's that. Body, Storm's body is not that bad, is it? <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> yes, success. Uh, so you, you no. think I did, wouldn't catch that, that little, uh, innuendo. No, no I just I, was hoping right, you would join me. Here's, here's the, um, um, we will, I mean, I, I, I say I base this on the resurrection body of Jesus mm -hmm. and in the history of the church, there's been all kinds of discussion, uh, all speculation of what, our, what body we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. How old will we be? I think it would be granted that we will be mature adults. Mm -hmm. We will not be infants or children. Uh, and there's been speculation that we will all be 32 or 30 or 33, the age of Jesus when he died, 37 maybe. So there's debate about that. I don't know that. I think we can say we will, we will flourish in the bodies that we will have and they will achieve all that they were designed to achieve. Okay. And I would go in that direction uh, with general ideas uh, within the parameters of the resurrection body of Jesus. I think we will have enhanced properties as Jesus was able to pass through walls. I, I don't know how that happens. Uh, we, would, we would say that maybe we would have the same because Paul says, we will be given a spiritual and glorious body. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the way I look at it. We'll go with enhance. I like the enhanced thing. I hope I get to choose what my enhancements are because the walking through walls things are pretty awesome.
Okay, we got physical bodies. We're not like clouds, souls floating on clouds playing harps. Okay, that's part of it. And the third promise is about pleasure. This will be a utopia. Heaven's going to be wonderful. Now, one of my persistent struggles was voiced by none other than none other than Sigmund Freud, who talked about religion and Christianity's like it's just wish fulfillment. We want it all to be good. We want things to be wonderful. We want a you know a good fatherly figure in the sky who's looking out for us. And the utopia thing, I know there's one way to read it. You have the the Lewis quote about contemporary pleasures are designed to point us towards the final heaven. But what about those who think, well, the utopia thing, that just seems like, man, we're just trying to make things that we want to happen, happen. How, how- it's, it's fair. I mean, it's a fair critique. I mean, it's skeptical and cynical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would also say that it is grounded in anthropology, it is grounded in sociology, and it is grounded in psychology that human beings have always longed for a better world. Mm-hmm. They've always longed for justice, and there has been a promise, if you accept Scripture as God's word to us, as I do, there is a promise that God will someday make all things right and will restore the fortunes of Israel. So at that point, then I would say that I wouldn't be cynical and I wouldn't be skeptical. I would embrace the desire of humans as something granted to us from God as as an experience and contrast with the sort of tragedies and negativities that we experience in this world will someday be undone. So mm-hmm. to me, it's a it's a question of hope and looking forward to it that... Mike Cope, Mike Cope's daughter, will be restored and healed, and he will know her as she was meant to be. You know, that sort of thing. I don't think that that's, I I think you can say that's just wish fulfillment projected onto God. That's one theoretical explanation. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, I have a different explanation. And it all goes back to resurrection. If that happened, then there's a whole new way to read the story. So when, when you write a book about heaven, and you write a good book about heaven, there's a question that everyone's going to want to ask you, which you address in the book towards the end. But the question is, okay, you're writing about heaven. You're writing what it's going to be like. You, you describe what our housing is going to be like, a veranda with a garden for the retreat, which I, I love that. I like the seclusion. I like to have my private time even in heaven. So that's a good thing. People want to know what their bodies are going to be like. But then the question it seems it's going to be central for many people is who gets in? Who makes yeah. it into heaven? Which you write about that. But your ultimate filter is we shouldn't no, – no, not your ultimate filter, but a quote you have is instead of focusing on ourselves and what it takes for us and what we have to do to get into heaven, let's focus on Jesus. Okay. I like that. But it seems like people are going to push back and say, no, no, no. Well, who exactly is – I really want to know who's in. How do we make it in? Okay. Now, I got this, I got this in this book. I don't know what page that's on. Who will – I'll get them uh, for you. Who, okay, one, it's got to be about 157. Yeah, that's the All right, so, mm-hmm. so here, here's, here's the big idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I at one time, had a, I had a listing of, uh, but I took it out because these, these uh, questions that were asked with some brief answers were, I didn't want those chapters to get too long. Okay. Um, you can go through all the religions of the world, and they all give you what you have to do to get in. Mm-hmm. When you start doing that, Christianity looks like all other religions. You know, they believe that you have to do these works in in uh, Hinduism. Uh, Islam says you have to do this. 
Christianity says you have to do this. I think that this turns it into what we have to do. And I'm going to, I'll get to that response, but I have a Christocentric approach to theology here. And that is, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm, uh, that I drive hard in the book is that all, everything we say about heaven is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. So, the first thing I would say about who gets to heaven is Jesus gets to heaven. Okay. Because it was Jesus who was raised from the dead. Once we admit that, then we would say all those who are, let's say, in his train or attached to him or hanging on to him or who believe in him, who are in him, who, uh, in whom he dwells, uh, in, whom, in whose hands he has them gripped, all those types of things, that language then makes sense. Because it is he who enters heaven, and it is he who brings all others into the presence of God, and it is he who, as the Lamb of God, welcomes people to the the marriage feast of the Lamb. So I would say that instead of focusing on what we have to do to get to heaven, we need to begin by saying, Jesus is in heaven, and then we get in Jesus by trusting in him, believing in him, obeying him, dwelling in him, attending to him, uh, eating from him, drinking, all those types of that language is all our focus on Jesus as the one who has accomplished everything we need for redemption. So I want to go at it first with Christology and then with our own faith. Okay, so it starts with Jesus. He's there first. Makes sense. I don't think anyone's going to argue with you about that. And then you're going to say, okay, so Jesus is there. He holds us. And that gets us in, okay. But then the person who says, well, you know, what about my kid who passed away who never was a part of church? And I raised him to be a part of church, but he just went his own separate ways, and then his life ended abruptly, and he never had a chance to return. I, I want to know if he made it in or not. How, well, do, you, first, how do you think uh, a pastor should answer that question? I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it's a, this is a tough question. Uh, you know, I've been asked this question in my life. Mm-hmm. First thing I'm going to say is Jesus is the one who has provided. Jesus is the one who is there. He has provided the path on which we traveled to get there. So I would say all those who are in Christ will be there. And I, th- I, I think it is wrong for a minister to go against his or her conscience and lie to people just to avoid the problem. Uh, there are times when a minister says, you know, I'm, I knew your son, and I think he's going to make it. And there's other times when you can say, I knew your son, and I don't think he wanted anything to do with Jesus. Let's hope in the grace of God uh, together that at death, in the resurrection, that he will uh, find a welcome face in Jesus. So I think I would go in that direction. Then there's others who say they you know, I, I think it's silly to say to believe in universalism and to believe that salvation is in Christ because there are people who don't want to believe in Jesus and don't have never believed in Jesus and would repudiate the idea that they believe in Christ. I, I, if, if you believe that heaven is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus and those who are in Jesus are going to be in heaven, then I think it, it is a contradiction to say that all people will be in heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the argument that some people make that, uh, you know, quoting from, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, the, you know, the sting of death is gone. 
And there's some people who've taken the sting of death to be the finality of it. Like once you die, you're like Rover and you're dead all over. There's nothing left. But maybe there's another chance that the sting of death is that it's final and that sting has been removed. So that maybe there's a chance that for you to respond to that after you die. Have you ever heard that argument? Of course I've heard that argument. That's uh, post-mortem uh, opportunities for Christ. I mean, this has been a big theme in universalism. Um, I, I've read it. And I, I can see theologically how a person would move from a belief in the love of God and the grace of God. I think this is what Rob Bell was actually trying to accomplish in his book, Love Wins, is that since God is loving and since God is gracious, he will not cease being loving and gracious after we die. So maybe there are opportunities. Uh, yep, maybe there are. I, I have no evidence in the Bible other than First Peter chapter 3, where... Jesus seems to have rescued people who had died. That's the only instance in the entire New Testament. The Old Testament doesn't have anything like it. That would give anyone a reason to believe in a post-mortem opportunity to believe in Christ. And I, I would say the evidence is so slender and so thin, we would be reckless and foolish to preach it as anything that we're confident in what I'm confident in is, is that Jesus was raised from the dead, and he calls us to believe in him. Fair enough. Fair enough. It seems like a very obscure thing. You've got the obscure thing, you know, being baptized for those who are dead. I have no clue what to do with that, so I'm not going to— Yeah, that's another one. That's, that's a little—yeah, I— I don't know what that one means. That, that you could take that one as as another instance, and I and I've seen people kind of draw on it, but nobody knows exactly what's going on there, and nobody knows if Paul is even approving of it. But First Peter three clearly is approving of something that Jesus has gone into the realm of the dead to rescue people who died in the time of Moses, uh, time of Noah. So. Yeah. Well, good. Well, Scott, your your phone is starting to cut out right now, unfortunately. Um, the book's been good. I enjoyed reading it. Like I said, it's a great resource. If you're, especially if you do any sort of teaching, this is a great book you need to have in your library uh, to help you guide through a discussion on heaven. And if you're just somebody who's interested in heaven, I think you're going to find it really helpful. And it is very accessible, like you tried to do. And now you're holding the copy of it. And uh, promise, the heaven promise. When did it come out? When was the release date? Uh, I think it was in September. Okay, so it's been out for a while. So people yeah. need to read it. Scott, yeah. thanks for your time, sir. Good to be with you, Luke. Thank right, you. Take care. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.